Good morning. Have a seat right here by the cross. In fact, why don't you all come up here right now and touch it, okay? You can touch the wood of the cross, all right? I've been here 21 years, so most of the splinters have come off into my own hand. So there, it's pretty, it's, it's still pretty rough though, isn't it? You come over and feel it? It's kind of rough. You want to? <laughs> can you reach it? It's kind of far away. Can you come forward? Come right up here. You can step on this, on the, on the brown thing. Come right here and... You can put your hand on it. Yeah, kind of rough, isn't it? All right, have a seat. <clears throat> the Romans used these, and they were about this size. This is just about life size. Uh, they used these to execute criminals. If you uh, tied somebody up or nailed them to the cross so they couldn't move, eventually... The fluid would fill up in their lungs and, and, and they wouldn't be able to breathe right and they would die. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. Now, I'd be scared of this. I'd be terrified of this. I wouldn't want to get anywhere near it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but Jesus came right up to it. In fact, uh, in our gospel lesson... And even back in the book of Jeremiah, the Old Testament lesson, we have uh, warnings about the way that sometimes uh, some angry people would treat God's messengers. And Jesus knew that all the way through his ministry, that people would get more and more angry about Jesus talking about sin and about the way we think about sin. In fact, in our day, Almost nobody uses the word sin anymore, except here in church. And I'm glad that we still do. We're not going to stop. But out in the world, hardly anybody talks about sin anymore because it makes you think you're accountable to God. And we are. And Jesus took all of that sin of ours on himself and let himself be put on the cross, nailed right to it, hand and foot, so that his blood, it is horrifying, isn't it? His, it? It did hurt. He suffered to pay for our sins. So that when God sees us, he's happy about us because of what Jesus did for us. Can we pray about that? You fold your hands. Heavenly Father, you sent Jesus to die on the cross so that we will not have to suffer in hell. Jesus rose again from the dead to show us that we will rise from the dead and live with you forever in heaven. Oh, thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus. And help us to remember that whenever we see a cross. Amen. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the Word of God for Meditation this second Sunday of Lent is the New Testament epistle lesson chosen for this day. Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 17 and moving into the beginning of chapter 4. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. 
For as I I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Remember your mercy, O Lord. Remember your mercy and love. Amen. Historically, the church has considered this epistle lesson in one of two Sundays during the church year. The first one Um, that is often no longer the case was a Sunday late in the summertime, a Sunday that doesn't always occur. And, and, And here, the second Sunday of Lent is the other spot for this text in, in Philippians. And since the beginning of the text is about our sanctified living, our life as Christians, it's good to ground ourselves in this season of the church year to to get our perspective right, because in Lent we think about Christ crucified for us. And that's what leads us to respond the way that Paul describes, using him, Paul, as a model or pattern, or those who follow Paul, and so that we, although we're not going to come out looking like cookie-cutter Pauls, we want to follow his example in, in living with the cross as the center of our attention in order to be examples and patterns for those who will follow us. Now, keeping Jesus at the front and center of our lives helps us to face attacks from the enemies of the cross. Notice that that's how Paul puts it. He could just say enemies or enemies of our faith or whatever, but he doesn't here. He says enemies of the cross. That helps us to remember that those who oppose us And the big three enemies are the devil and the world and our personal, private, sinful human nature are opposing Christ and the the victory that he won on the cross. And so as I think about this in terms of a spiritual battle in my life, what ground am I willing to give up and what am I unwilling to give up? Well, give up anything but the cross. Anything but the gospel of the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of our souls. Let someone take my, my clothes, my, my cats, my family, my car, my home, my reputation, my name, my health, my life, but not the cross, not the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. They can can attack us, they can abuse us, they can make laws that oppose us, but they cannot have the cross of Christ. 
And this, Paul says, is because of our true citizenship. Not, not here in this state or in the United States of America or as if the world is, a, is some kind of a global village. Our citizenship is different. In order to understand this properly, I would like to, to define or explain a, a Greek word, politoima. Politoima, which our NIV translates really well with citizenship. I don't think I could ever have come up with a better translation than that. Politoima isn't simply to be a citizen. It's rather our place of citizenship. Where is it where you're a citizen? Maybe right now you've got strongly um, patriotic or, or political views. Easy thing to do, a good thing to do, especially when we're at war uh, as, as the world uh, or an element of the world is fighting right now and, and, and battling. And it's good and understandable to be patriotic. But Paul the Apostle says right now, turn that down just a little bit. Let's back things up a little bit. Don't forget that you and I are not citizens. That is, permanent dwellers with the rights of fatherlanders of any spread of real estate in the world. Not really, and not only. We are really to think of ourselves as strangers here, as aliens, foreigners, immigrants, temporary residents living only in a tent maybe for a time. Our citizenship, our true place of citizenship and of belonging is in heaven. This is why this text is often used as, as a funeral lesson. It is used as part, often as part of our, of our graveside uh, service at a funeral. Um, because when a Christian is called home in death, we think about their citizenship now changed and transferred permanently. And I mean permanently to heaven. Uh, a while ago, I was writing devotions on the Gospel of Luke, and in one part of one chapter of Luke, I, it was just so packed with, 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 with truth, true statements about heaven and hell and, and death and the resurrection and so forth. I, I, I counted 35 true statements about that in just that one little part of Luke. I'm not going to read all 35 to you right now, but... There are maybe five things that we should think about and always remember when it comes to the transfer of our citizenship from the temporary one here to the permanent one we have in heaven. First of all, when a person is called home in death, the soul separates from the body and the soul is immediately taken, Scripture tells us, to the throne of God in heaven. In, in one place where Jesus talks about this event, he assures us that our spirits are actually carried to heaven by angels. Secondly, the, as for the body, the body now deprived of its spirit is simply decays in death and is buried to await, to await what? The resurrection, the physical resurrection of the dead that we confess in the creed and, and in the catechism and, and know and treasure in our heart. No other religion in the world does this. The resurrection of the body, it must be something else. But that's not what the Bible says. Our bodies will actually rise when 
we awaken to that trumpet call of God in the last day, we will rise remade, perfect, glorious, in, in, in one respect, as I suppose, as similar to the present body as uh, the reflection in a mirror is a reflection of our actual self, and yet glorified and better without any of the flaws and defects and pains we had in this lifetime, the way that the, the sun is more glorious than the moon or the way that a bride on her wedding day is more glorious than every other woman in the world. Thirdly, for those of us who remain here behind on earth, the, the moment that that loved one is called home to heaven, the, the memory of that loved one, I'm going to say becomes rather sealed in a kind of oral tradition where as we begin to talk about our loved one and remember them, uh, 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 yesterday was my mother's birthday and I've been talking to my brother and sister about, about mom and telling mom stories and so forth and re realizing that as we tell these stories back and forth, um, someone else, my, maybe my brother's good word is something that I'll pick up and use. And, and maybe something I'll say is something my sister will pick up and use. And we begin to, to help each other remember things the best way possible. And uh, there's a small amount of idealization that takes place as we remember our loved one, and which is one of, I think, the best applications of Luther's words in his explanation to the Eighth Commandment, where he tells us in our most recent translation of the Catechism, to take things in the kindest possible way. Or as some of us learned in an older translation, to put the best construction on everything. Well, fourthly, there is also, of course, rejoicing in heaven over the Spirit's arrival. This rejoicing, we're also told, happens whenever any sinner turns in repentance back to God, but also then heaven erupts into joyful song when a new citizen of heaven arrives there, arrives at home. And then fifthly, uh, uh, corresponding, I suppose, to the rejoicing in heaven, and except in a kind of a, can I say equal and opposite? That's not a scriptural term, but there's kind of a reaction to the joy in heaven. There is also an, uh, this disappointment in the devil's realm of perdition because yet again, as is the case with every single Christian called home to glory, the devil has failed yet again to tear any of these little ones out of the Father's hands, as Jesus puts it. Think of all the temptations that the devil sets in our path, that the pitfalls of our lives, that and, and, and the way the devil does it, sometimes he has success, more success with one person by, by accusing and by fear-mongering so that the cross is obscured from the vision of some Christians because the devil throws dust in their eyes and, 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 and only gives them terror of, of, of the law of God um, and, and, and leaves them wallowing in sin and guilt, shame fear, embarrassment, that they can't see the gospel. 
And for others, the devil maybe has better success with, with outright lies, with fake news, with alternate facts, and obscuring the cross from the other Christians by puffing them up and then planting false contentment or pride in their hearts by causing certain Christians to, to think that maybe this or that sin is that's no sin at all. And or, or it's a sin that doesn't anger God. Where do they get that from? Or, or that this or that sin can't be a sin because it makes me happy. And then they end up setting their opinion above God's holy will. What a mess both of these things are. Some can't see Christ because they're too terrified, and some can't see Christ because they're so puffed up with their own self-worthiness. What a mess this is. Who will clean up this mess? Well, Christ will and does. By the simple gifts he gives to us in his holy word, the law and the gospel. The law to condemn the self-righteous, contented sinner and, and let him understand that his sins truly do convict him before God. But then the gospel to pick up the convicted, terrified sinner and let all of us know that we have the Savior from our sins, all of them covered by the blood of Christ. When we think about our citizenship here in the world, here in the meantime, we see that our earthly citizenship, whatever it might happen to be, ours is in this nation. It's a, it's, it can be a very good thing, a blessing, because citizenship in a country, especially like ours, means that we have relative freedom of worship without much interference from the government or from others, without hopefully fear of violent or deadly attacks on account of our faith, although those things do happen in other places in the world and sometimes here in America. But remember that our citizenship on earth is mostly based on, on what one thing? Where you were born. It's kind of the zip code of your hospital that tells you your citizenship. And, or if uh, an individual makes a conscious decision later in life to change their citizenship, to say, I no longer want to belong to this country. I live here, and I want to be in this country. And there's a legal change of status then. But our heavenly citizenship is not like either one of those things. It is not based on any conscious decision that we make ever, nor is it based on our human birth or race or language or any other association, not even family association. It is based entirely on our rebirth in Christ, the gift of the gospel that comes only by the grace of God. And as we await the day when we will move from this temporary place to our permanent heavenly citizenship, we remember that we carry around with us the very closest enemy of the cross of Christ inside of ourselves, inside of our personal, private, human nature. This is most especially when a Christian becomes convinced that Maybe he's righteous because he's basically good or good enough for God and, and, and he thinks that nobody's perfect, therefore we don't have to be perfect. 
That's not what God's word said either. But the righteousness demanded by God, it doesn't change. It's the same righteousness that was demanded of Jesus. That's what's demanded of us. But which only Christ could keep. And which he did keep on our behalf with his life. With his words. With his thoughts. Sinful man including me and you. Sinful man is not righteous by nature. And God doesn't move the bar so we can climb over it somehow. Man wishes it were so. But sinful man learns to finally hate the law. Wish it weren't there. Ignore it. Put his own opinion above the law of God. And ultimately even to hate the gospel because he wants his own life to be good enough for God. But may God crush that attitude of the law and gospel and mankind's hatred, ultimate hatred of God's holy word. Like the prophet Jeremiah, opposed by everyone who heard him. Let us rather fear the law of God with a righteous, holy fear that respects and is frightened of the punishment of sin. And let us look to the cross to know where the only rescue from sin comes from. Let us recognize that we need the gospel. We long for the gospel. We yearn for the gospel. Because only in the gospel of Christ are we made righteous before God. And we are righteous before God. Brought into our permanent citizenship in heaven. While we await our arrival there, we can model Paul's good pattern and be a pattern for our children to follow. No matter how old they are, whether they're still at home or not, and maybe if you don't have any children of your own, recognizing that there are children who still look at you and look up to you, maybe as you pull out of your driveway in the morning or that you uh, 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 pay to come and rake your yard or, or, or shovel your sidewalk or, or whatever it might happen to be, or children who simply see you here in the pew. What imprint will you make on them today? And the peace of God that transcends our understanding guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. For our uh, stewardship message this morning, we, we have a stewardship now rather than passing the, the collection plate. There are plates at the entrances of the sanctuary or down in the church office where you can mail something in during the week. And there are ways to give online as well. But as we simply think about why we give and and to look for a pattern, a model in Scripture of, of Christian giving that simply gives out of thanks to God. I was reading in 2 Corinthians 8 earlier this week about the Apostle Paul being surprised and, and delighted um, as he shares with those southern Greek Christians what happened up north and the way that they showed their faith. And let me just read this one verse where Paul says, they, that is the, the northerners, the Macedonian Christians, they did not give as we expected. 
but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. 